Hello to all school alumni, White Scarvengers, listeners new and old, to guys, gals, and non-binary pals. In our first new segment since we began almost one year ago, we're finally doing something different, giving our piping hot takes on a new book of the New Century Multiverse. This is a very special episode of Through the Wind Door, News of the Century. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Through the Window with your friends Greg and Toby. Uh, This is a very special episode because for the first time, we're going to be doing what Alex would refer to as a quick review because Stone Spring Maidens, the newest entry into the New Century oeuvre, came out, I don't remember. It's three like, weeks ago? It's something like that. Something like that. Three weeks to four weeks ago. Uh, I finished reading it 36 hours after Alex released it to Patreon viewers and uh, the Discord and everything like that. And my friend Toby here has only just finished reading it. He was reading it almost in real time, <laughs> posting about it. It's so on- good, everyone. It's so good. Posting about it on Discord as he went, uh, because Alex was curious about pacing issues. And you finished, I want to say, about like an hour, an hour and a half ago now? Yes, I am an hour and a half, and I am emotionally spent. And then mm-hmm. I had something to eat, and I'm just raring to go again. Okay, well, fair enough. As long mm-hmm. as you're as long as you're properly juiced and energized and everything like that, that's... I... Uh, I am sufficiently juiced. Um, <laughs> I wait, Greg. I'm confused. Where are all our notes? I usually have pages and pages in front of me. You know, <laughs> I mean, well, it's not exactly. Like... The thing is, is that you were reading right up until the last minute, so I could have taken some time to put together some notes. But in this particular case, I felt like it would be more organic to just riff off of the high energy and the immediate experience of what you were going by, and I was going to follow you up on that. I've had yeah. weeks now to sort of process everything. I discussed it a little bit on the Discord with other people. I discussed it in private with Alex a little bit, and I'm in the middle of a slower and more measured reread of everything, but I haven't I haven't even gotten to Act 2. Or actually, I think I just got to act to like a day or so ago so but you you have you went through act two and act three of stone spring maidens like literally over the last 24 hours so everything is very fresh in your mind the majority of it it was i was taking my time to go through it i took sort of breaks and pauses but i was enjoying the sensation of it all being connected so it has been I've read the first, I think, 70 pages, or at least in the format I've got here, 70 pages. It was about, like, basically 20% of the book a week or so ago. And then after I handed in a confirmation document and I was feeling rather chuffed with myself and thought, well, I've got a bit of spare time, how about I eventually 
devastate myself reading some new century. That sounds like a good way to spend an afternoon or two. Fair enough. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. And um, it was. It was a very good way to spend an afternoon and two. It was... I, I've said this. Uh, I won't be just repeating everything I put on the Discord because you can just go through the archive history. Or maybe you can't. I don't know how long it holds on to these comments. But, well, in uh, theory, it holds on to it forever, but it's not great for, like, you have to scroll and scroll yeah, and scroll yeah. the, the longer something is. So, so yeah. I will say this. I think most of the time, my favorite new century book doesn't really change because my favorite new century book is just the new one or the one I read most recently. That's the best new century book. And I think that there's some truth to that. But mm-hmm. gun to my head, and I'm just sitting and thinking, Alex, why are you pointing a gun at my head? But um, <laughs> gun to my head, my favorite new century book before this Toss up between a couple. I Arlington was a top place contender right alongside Tiger's Eye and potentially Steam Harp. Also, Let Them Go is really good. The problem is there's a lot of <laughs> uh, there's a lot of good new century stuff. Arlington is probably the one that that was the one where I felt because I was saying I was actually having a conversation earlier today about just new century with Sarah, the other person I talk at a lot about this. I think when I was first going through New Century, Kartokova's Handbook, I thought, oh, that's pretty good. I feel quite immersed. I'm curious to see where the rest of this goes. Uh, Secret Rooms was the non-definitive edition. I thought, oh, that was pretty good. And then it became great later on. Then Tiger's Eye was the first book in the series. And I thought, oh, shit, this is something really special. And then Arlington was kind of like, the first book of the series where we were returning to the world of the multiverse that we were the most invested in because we had a couple of books already. Mm-hmm. And it was the first one after, like, I think Alex really found his footing with writing these books. And it was also where I knew, oh, this this is really good. And that book just floored me. I was an emotional wreck by the end. And when in those last sentences you see you intuit exactly what has finally paid off with stone spring maidens and also uncivil outlaw they work very well as a pairing of books mm-hmm. but um my favorite for i think reasons that i will be going into in our next season when we get to that and heck i'm even looking at a canvas of it the front cover of it right now it's uh, sat right alongside my desk it was difficult for me to say oh like what could be a new favorite and this is a bias of having just gone through and just eaten this whole thing up in 48 hours and just documenting my stuff on it this is my favorite new century book now this is my favorite one and wendy goes out there are uh, angry with me no i'm sorry this is my favorite one I think I'll ask you to go into detail a little bit more with that. Although technically with the two of us doing a quick review of it, the entire conversation would be a chance for you to explain and elucidate why you feel the way you do. Absolutely. Um, The only thing I'm sorry, go ahead. No, uh, I mean, this whole thing is going to be so unstructured. And when we get to season, 
I don't know, 10 of Through the Window, and we're finally doing our uh, five episodes on Harry and Penny meeting for the first time. And I will, trust me. But when we get there, we can really drill into it in the same way that we have with Tiger's Eye. And I'm really proud of how that as a series has come together. But this one has to be, by its nature, a sort of overview with a couple of little like, oh, I like that part and I like that part. I think that if I was to condense it and at the risk of kind of giving a conclusion before I've even done the groundwork, in terms of just enjoyability, there's a line near the end of the book that I said, that's it. That's the entire book is when Penny and Harry, spoilers, by the way, uh, firm spoilers, many spoilers, all the spoilers, um, when Penny and Harry finally like after everything that's happened in the book there's nothing in the way now and penny says i was going to say that i want to be by myself or i think i need to be myself and now that i'm here fuck that i want to be with you and then there's the line they made love in the bed that was once her sick bed and i thought that's it that's the book right there because it's a book about healing and getting to a place that I forget the terminology that uh, Penny uses that the oh, I'm so sorry I'm going to uh, forget terms and things I the Elaine that's the uh, name of the species isn't it mm-hmm. so the Elaine use of like sono ombras or it soma oneros I think that's is how it. you pronounce it yes. soma oneros and that's kind of like the conversations they have about that is the sort of the book tipping its hand and saying this is what this is about or one of the big things that it is about because the first act is hard Mm -hmm. it is very hard you're seeing two people who are stuck in a situation where it feels like they don't have control or they have lost control and like in Harry's case, she's gone through terrible trauma and it does not shy away from just how shit this experience is and how it makes her feel. And it's very hard. And then almost from the first pages of Act Two, you get that necessary dose of joy and it keeps coming. The pain, the difficulty does come and creeping back in it never stops being difficult but it just brings more and more joy and by the end of it you're just uplifted and the final part where harry harry just lifts the top all and set and after all this says it's time to rebuild mm. it's so meaningful On the surface, the reason why this is my favourite, I think, is that in a series that has given us so many really good relationships, really good ones, that has done couples, whether they are long-standing, whether they have complicated, tragic relationships, or whether they're new relationships that are developing, New Century has done romance well. This book is a romance, And 
It's a really good one. I know I'm, this is terrible commentary because I'm just saying this book is really good over and over, <laughs> but this is what happens when you ask me my opinions of something uh, an hour and a half after I finished it and I haven't done any notes and I'm not doing a 50 part series of why it's the best thing ever. The characters have this fantastic chemistry and the romance, and it's not just them and it's a, like there's multiple romances happening and developing and some of them are things that are new some of them are ones that are quietly developing after years of it just gestating and suddenly coming about and there's pain and there's so there's a lot of really good content there the material everything there is solid in and of itself but I'll tell you right now the personal connection I have with this. There is something about reading a story like this in the same week that you submitted or you cleared a milestone that you had been pushing up against and clawing and fighting your way for for too long and you had had setbacks and some positive moments and after a year of anxiety and both on a global scale and in a personal one, to have finally managed it and to know that you're on the way towards healing, towards progress, that makes the final moments of this gloriously uplifting. Because if like if this is a bit cryptic, I'll expand in detail. I I've gone into my anxieties before that there's it's just something that has been a recent I suppose over the last year and a half two years that I've been working through and it intensified and got to its worst stage last year as anyone going through mental health stuff or anxiety or anything like that will have found in 2020 and going into this year as well and that's on the back of a lot of shit that is piled on our plates that we keep contending with over time I've been working on it at times I would make progress and at other times it would feel like I had setbacks eventually I was able to after taking periods of temporary withdrawal from my academic work after needing some time away after losing a family member after just delays and feeling like I was never going to move forward I never could move forward that I would just be stuck in a place where I would not be able to bring up my old strengths and be a version of myself that I was I knew could do this that I felt like the old version of me that was braver, that was smarter, that was sharper, had just been lost somewhere along the way, to finally, through just time and perseverance and luck, to have got to a point where I am now on my second and third week of feeling like I have been consistently able to face the work and now been able to submit a 76-page document which has been gone through several drafts over the last 10 days and I'm so happy and I've managed to 
make contact with people. It feels like I've been able to go to that wreckage and, like Harry say, it's time to rebuild. Well, that's the show, everybody. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> so, yeah, I basically that's the conclusion at the start. So I'm terrible at structuring. Luckily, this sh this luckily this book isn't. This book has a great structure. I've been talking for too long. Greg, over to you. What are your thoughts as a not deranged hyper fan who has done the equivalent of downing? 30 cups of coffee in quick succession and suddenly has to be like, oh, the, the bit with Atar and Gani and when they're talking and oh, when he smashes that robot in the face and then it, this is the equivalent of that movie Bob uh, video of King of the Monsters of just like, this is so fucking good. Breathe, Chelby. Never! <laughs> over to you. Just it like, has to go uh, over to you. Uh, yeah, I'll I'll give this over to you. But no, now I'm going to talk for 15 more minutes. <laughs> I'm very glad that Stone String Maidens has invoked such personal resonance in you, particularly after we went through our final look at Tiger's Eye together, and I went through sharing a lot of my own personal stuff with you a lot more deep-seated stuff rather than the more recent things that you personally have been having to deal with. So I'm very happy that Stone Spring Maidens has been very cathartic or synchronistic in terms of the timing, in terms of mm. helping you externalize uh, what you personally have been going through that we've only uh, hinted at around the seams over the course of doing this podcast together. Mm. Listening to you talk about this makes me think about how, I don't remember who it was, and of course everybody's on has monikers on, you know, screen names on Discord to begin with. But I want to say a week back, or maybe a couple weeks back, there was someone specifically asking Alex, or asking all of us really, where the best place to start was if you had never read a new century book before and people have different answers to that. I of course answered with the fact that, well, I started with this book because this is the first book that Alex sent to me. This is what he recommended to a lot of people in the past as being a new foundation to build on. But Alex ended up taking it a little bit further. And I think he might've consulted with, Sharon or other people along the way and when he made this little infographic he was like this is the overall theme of what these books are and the books that I've highlighted here are a good place to jump on if you've never read a new century book before I'll post the infographic in the show notes but it's centered around do you like this genre then start here and one of the choices that was a surprise to me and which I asked him a little bit about, was that he put Stone Spring Maidens as being a good jumping-on point for new readers. And this is a surprise because so much of what Stone Spring Maidens builds on is a result of, well, you kind of need 
Arlington and Steamheart in order to get the full story, or even Uncivil Outlaw, although Stone Spring Maidens doesn't really get into a whole lot of just that Abigail and James aren't around, or that Mr. White is not present for a good portion of the story, and obviously the events of Uncivil Outlaw explain why. So I was like, well, there's all of this stuff, and yes, Stone String Maidens does its best to explain the relevant stuff in order that people are caught up on the important things. Like, for example, one of the scenes we see early in Act 1 was the moment that was only hinted at all the way back in the pages of Arlington, which is when Thomas makes the decision not to kill Frederick, his son that had been infected with the Wendigo plague, and in fact sets things up so it seems like he in fact killed Frederick, but merely set things up so that the newly infected Wendigo could Uh get away. Yeah, exactly. I'm sorry about bringing that up. But this is is one of those moments that's hard to get through in Act 1, I'll have to admit with you. No, but I'm now suddenly thinking, of course we had to see that and Mm -hmm. for it to come into this text Mm -hmm. because the whole thing, like White's slash uh, Thomas's journey in this is Thomas is kind of poking through the cracks that are beginning to form in White's armor. Mm. And the moment that feels specifically like the past is repeating itself is when he gets to Project Binary Dawn and is confronted with something that his like logic progressive side of White is saying, this needs to be like torn down that's the call I've made and I know that people are putting their lives on the line to do it and other people are dying. What right do I to make a personal call? And yet my emotional compassionate side is seeing this and is unable to call, like to act on this is being confronted with children. Mm. He views the unruly mass population of America as children in a very critical sense that they are unruly and uncontrollable and just they will tear things down and do illogical things but that analogy seems to fall apart for him when he actually is confronted with genuine innocence and youth that he can't bring it in himself to like he won't harm that he can't harm that we, I'm sorry, we've gotten off topic a little bit. Yes, we have, again, but No, <laughs> it's all I'm right. I'm a terrible conversation partner in this. I, am, I do apologize. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, but having heard what you were just saying about that and your opinions on why White behaved the way he did, I suspect that what we learned from earlier in the book does play a part into that. I also expect that, more significantly, his drive, his resolve was already significantly weakened by the confrontation that he would have had with Abigail in Uncivil Outlaw prior to this point. Mm. Like, he was he was already walking around with serious cracks in his armor, the, the metaphor that you used a moment yeah. ago. And he did his best, I think, to rally back 
when he attempts to kill McPherson, and then again when he attempts to bring down Binary Dawn. But the uncertainty that we see present when we flash back to the moment at Green Hollow, that's been widened now by everything that has come in between and is like almost a hammer blow at him again and again Mm -hmm. when he sees Harry confronting him and the power armor uh, is probably another blow to that Mm -hmm. self-assuredness as well as the whole thing where he is left alone to try and carry this carry on with this without the assistance of Lee who had been his second in all of this. Mm. Um, but <clears throat> to, to come back to the original point that I was trying to make, the reason why this could be a good jumping on point or why someone might want to start with this story as opposed to starting somewhere that gives us more of the backstory of the world and of a lot of the players involved is that Stone Spring Maidens does something different that none of the other stories have done before. When he outlined everything on the infographic, he coined Stone Spring Maidens specifically as being LGBTQ romance. Mm-hmm. And as you spoke a lot about in your opening gush, that is a major focus to the story overall. Like, there's many different elements to it, and you drew personal significance from some of them as you were relating the healing experience of your personal work over the last several weeks and months and such, as well as the journey that Harry and Penny go on in terms of coming to terms with their lives and finding sympathetic resonance with each other and with the people they surround themselves with to move forward into their lives with a greater sense of confidence and resolve and support. But between the relationship between Harry and Penny, and as we see later developing the relationship between Ganymede and, and Atar. Atar? Now I don't know how you pronounce something. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go with Atar until Alex or somebody else mm-hmm. corrects me. Obviously, the audio drama will eventually correct me one way or the other. It's, on us. Of... it's not even Penny, it's Penai. <laughs> well, <laughs> back when I was having my side conversation with Alex, I for some reason, chose to refer to Penny as Thessaly instead, as being the diminutive rather than Penny. And I couldn't explain to you why, except I guess I like the Thessaly part of her extended name for some reason. Mm-hmm. So, alternatively, there is a character named Thessaly in the Gaiman oeuvre, and my brain did a derp. My point being, you know, now that I'm getting off to a rambling and everything like that. This is the quick review. This is the, (laughs) like, it's not even the quick review. It's the ramble review. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. What was I saying? I was saying that that Stone String Rains does something different than the other books. Mm. And in some way, like, I, I think I would need to 
reimmerse myself in it and go over it and over it like you know we have for other books in the series in order to be able to say this for certain but i know that alex put a lot of work into trying to make this as comprehensible as possible for people coming in after having all of this baggage and making sure to try and reinform them of the relevant stuff throughout mm. a lot of act 1 but even parts of act 2 and act 3 as well particularly as white more fully re-enters the story uh cuz we that during most of act 2 he is for the most part a non-presence it's all about the building relationship between Harry mm. and Penny and the other Elaine cast members as they explore that world and start to, you know, figure out who our friends are, who our enemies are, and what are we going to do about the problems on both sides of the wind door. Um, and then all of a sudden we find out about what white's plans are and the rest of the story comes rushing back in so the relationship takes a little bit of a backseat but it's also part and parcel with everything else at the same time the relationship the figuring out doesn't stop mm. it's just that there are now moments of tension and action and the book now reminds us that back when Uncivil Outlaw ended, for those of us that, you know, remember when Uncivil Outlaw came out 57 years ago, uh, mm. that when Alex chose to end that book, he did it with the tagline, Harry and Mr. White will return. Mm. So White has kind of been, like, I guess if we were to qualify Stone Spring Maidens, it's maybe more of an ensemble cast overall in some of the same ways Steamheart was. It is primarily Harry and Penny's story as far as the romance is going, but mm. you can't really tell the full arc of Harry's story without also bringing her father, or as you would have phrased at one point, the ghost of her father back into the story, because that's an unresolved mm. point for Harry herself. Yes. She needs to have that confrontation in order to move on. Mm. And in point of fact, back when I was musing about the structure of this story, there was, I think... The way I phrased it to, it might have been Alex or it might have been the Discord, I don't remember now, because everything is behind black sensor bars, and therefore finding anything is even harder, because I have to click on, okay, what was this here? Okay, what was this Especially here? Especially after the deluge of black sensor bars I <laughs> threw in there, which uh, out of context sounds uh, sketch as hell, but uh, <laughs> no, I assure you, I was just talking about how much I was appreciating the two lesbian ladies kissing, wait a minute, um, <laughs> it's, okay. yeah. The, the, just the point that I wanted to make is that while 
Stone Spring Maidens is doing its own thing with the with the romance plot that might be the front and center focus for people that want to have that kind of thing and aren't necessarily getting it from other sources. Stone mm. Spring Maidens borrows very heavily from both elements of, I want to say, MCU's Iron Man and from the Winter Soldier. Because, mm. as, yeah, exactly. Because yeah, the, Harry... the whiter soldier. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> the white. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there's a good way of putting that. But yeah, mm. when you combine the ideas of Harry coming back from being injured in much the way that uh, Tony was in the first act of Iron Man, and therefore building new limbs and then a new suit to come back to full functionality but to also use it in pursuit of the things that she cares about. And then on top of that, having that confrontation uh, at the end of Act 2 with realizing that Mr. White is her father. All of those are elements that you can't not feel are influenced by these movies that Alex has put so much effort into watching and enjoying and deconstructing particularly since one of the things that he's been doing as a part of his quick reviews is coming back to a full retrospective of all marvel movies up to this point Mm. uh, over the course of the last several months never mind that iron man is also a movie about how tony chooses to make a major change in how he interacts with the people and events of the outside world Yes, Harry was always a good person, as opposed to Stark, but she was also insulated. Someone that up until the tail end of Arlington was mostly an extremely internal person, and Steamheart was a first for her engaging in real relationships and world events. Like Tony, trauma forces Harry to reevaluate and re-engage with the world on new terms, taking an active role and becoming more than just a creative force. When she stands there at the end with Tesla, Yagyu, Truth, Lee, and Donna, and says that it's time to rebuild, she is acting like a leader in her own right. Catherine may be our new operational figurehead, and Abigail naturally makes us think of Steve Rogers. But Tony was also an inspirational force, and someone who was not afraid, in the end, of taking action of his own accord to make the world better. And that's Harry all over now. Sorry, I got a little carried away there. I return you now to our original conversation. I would uh, interject and say that uh, there's one film that this sort of reminds me in a abstract way, but uh, the thing I'm looking at that the tone of a large part of Act 2 reminds me of is and this will sound a bit odd but this is similar to me as the film her have you ever seen her i am familiar with her i've only seen it once so it's not fresh in my head Mm. i know the the overall mise-en-scene of the movie Mm. in terms of like what it involves but i would fail to it's properly mentioned like specifics moments. specifics it probably the comparison doesn't hold up and i'm sure this is a stretch but i make this comparison in the sense that this is 
a romance in a fictional setting that feels very removed from our own world. Mm. And that's what makes it a fascinating introduction to a whole new world of autumn. Because the first story we have in New Century that introduces us to another world is Tiger's Eye. Mm. And the sort of genre or the structure of that is it's a journey narrative, mm. It's a, and which is built up to walk you through this world and introduce you to its inhabitants. Mm. Then you have something like The Princess Thieves, which is this like overlapping Venn diagram of different worlds that have all influenced one another and uh, coalescing and it feels like there's a lot of politics but it feels very sort of Warhammer D&D so there's a great opportunity for just a cocktail of different settings and species and characters that are larger than life. Here you're looking at this whole new world that's very unique. Sorry Toby, gonna have to ding you for that one. President Bartlett, would you mind? Unique means one of a kind. Something can't be very unique, nor can it be extremely historic. And you're turning it through a genre that is very much centered on looking at small scale, at specific people, rather than the grander movements of an entire civilization. It's about Harry and Penny, ultimately, mm. is the, like, the first act is ping-ponging between them. That's a really creative way, and it made me almost more invested in finding out about this world because I was finding out about it through the lenses of these two. I think that's why this works as a introduction to New Century, because the content of the story is about two people introducing each other to each of their worlds. You're enjoying watching these two get to know each other and develop their relationship. You're invested in the content of the conversations and the content of their conversations is kind of about like fleshing out and telling you what their respective worlds are like. Not only that, but I think another reason why this works as a beginning is that thematically, this is about new beginnings. Mm. Harry has had to kind of find a new way of living her life and she is kind of reborn by the end of this she has a like a restrengthened and cemented lease of life and she is building herself back up again and i think that that's a great place to come in in the middle of things but to uh, go back to my uh, point that i was saying about these genres is that i think there's something fascinating about these romance stories that are set in these fantastical settings where the story isn't necessarily concerned with telling you every detail of the wider machinations of this world. In her, there's it's been a while since I've seen it, but there's this delightful sort of like odd background technology that's not quite in align with how technology works in our world and also it's very difficult to actually discern what it is that the main character does as a job where he seems to be writing personal letters for other people though to be honest that's just something online creatives do now it's just that that kind of work is usually on commission and it hasn't been commercialized into a corporate business with an office 
the the point of that film isn't necessarily that it's about the relationship between two individuals that's kind of how you make sense of this world and there's there's something to that that i think is really compelling and captivating because when i was like in the opening chapters you're introduced to all this new stuff and you think wow this is this is quite overwhelming i don't know how to make sense of this i know penny seems cool let's stick with penny oh and Ganymede also seems cool. Let's stick with them. Uh, Lamia, hmm. Lamia doesn't seem cool. Let's not stick <laughs> with her. Um. Just a side note, but naming a domineering matron Lamia is an inspired choice. Although you'll have to wait for the retrospective as to why. TLDR, it's a mythology thing. But um, yeah, no, I've I've gone on a ramble as I want to do. Oh, I remember. Uh, there's actually. One Marvel film that, uh, and Alex will hate me for this comparison or me invoking this with this delightful creation of his is it reminded me of parts of Thor the Dark World. Fake. Most of the stuff in here is fake. No, no, stop, stop. I'm, I'm, no, wait, hang on. I'm specifically meaning that one segment of Thor the Dark World where Jane Foster is brought to asgard and there's a brief period of time where they're just walking through asgard and the chemistry between the two characters that you quite like and you think oh this is quite nice means that you're like oh i could watch a whole film about this and then it becomes about a whole load of less interesting things and then tom hiddleston who we are also interested in this story is almost like an entire film of just hey i'm getting to know this girl who's kind of cool in this fantastical world and it's kind of a really cool place to go on dates in that's it that i think i've hit on the appeal of this genre of fantastical romance stories is that it's nice to see characters you like get along and it's cool to see them go on fun dates in cool locations what's more cool than an entire unfamiliar world that seems like a pretty nice place to get to know someone so you're saying that two people from different walks of life have met each other unexpectedly and now they're going and exploring a whole new world a new fantastic point of view i would say that yes <laughs> no one to tell us no or where to go or that we're only dreaming well okay so We've both had a chance to ramble a little bit and get it out of our system. So you think I'm done? <laughs> well, let me provide. Here, I pass you... the ramble stick to you. Okay, fair enough. But uh, to be perfectly honest, what I was going to suggest is if I provide a little more structure to our discussion thus far, to oh, ask thanks. some specific questions about how you felt about different parts of the story. Sure so let me preface our new tangent with this. How do you feel about the world of the Elaine, what we learn of it, and its reflections on and differences between its society and our society? I was really intrigued by the world of the Elaine Autumn because, first of all, I just really like 
autumn is a season so I was thinking oh a world that is associated with that I'd like to be there but after I got beyond that superficial reasoning I was curious because a lot of the imagery and just the way that uh, Alex was speaking about this book before it released it felt like what autumn was going to be was this sort of utopia world where everything was just so much more beautiful everything was running so much better everyone was so much more accepting and it felt like they had gone beyond so much beyond all the petty bullshit of our world and i thought that it was going to be the story of just like we need an escape somewhat and also there will be a tragic element to just being able to go to this other place and know oh my god like our reality is so far away from that and actually having a character in the text be able to express that bittersweetness of this is such a, this fondness for finding and clicking so well with this amazing place but knowing that there's so much shit back home and a lot of that is in the story but what I found fascinating was that it's very clear from as early as act one that this is not a perfect utopia, that there is a social, there are social pressures that make it really unpleasant for certain people that our point of view character is connected to, you know, a wife and a mother who seem to be kind of well-established and well-respected in civil in society here. So they are probably representative of you know, both personal and wider social pressures that are sending her into panic attacks and are feeling like they're manipulative and just coercing her to do things that she doesn't want to do. And it's this thing of the different dynamics in weddings in this are much more like triangular than just two people. At first you're like, Oh, this is kind of really cool to explore this perspective of things and then you sort of see the variety of sort of different complications like the fact that there is more it's just encouraging to see that uh, encouraging is the wrong word but I thought that what was compelling was that because act one is all about Penny and how she is in a situation that she really needs like you really want her to get out from it's very clear that autumn is beautiful but it has a element to it that is detrimental or in fact its very name is an embodiment of that that it's this very visual beautiful dying exactly it's a what it's a season that has a like golden beauty to it but it is a world that's dying and there are as much as these conflicts that they have between these different countries empires they don't go a lot into it because frankly that's not all that important right now but there are conflicts over the different resources that hasn't gone away Mm. and it is dying and there are people who are dying from paperbone which was i thought was such a ominous and terrifically selected like name for a disease that felt Mm. like oh yeah no you you hear it and without having to hear anything about the symptoms of it you instantly know 
what it entails and you think oh my god ah so that's what i found compelling about it is that it was this world that you were drawn to but the more time you spent there the more you realize that the leaves were falling off the trees and withering i don't have a lot of experience with utopian fiction i know that that's a subgenre of certain kinds of mm. speculative fiction I will uh, very briefly say I did a module in uh, English literature a long time ago and for a couple of weeks there I read uh, utopian fiction and it's so boring. <laughs> it's so boring. Well, I, I got the impression and I don't necessarily know if this is correct that the thing behind utopian fiction is very often that things may be better than our world certain things may have been resolved that are major problems that we are dealing with today you can even take a look at certain elements of star trek in terms of the things that they claim that they've moved beyond and aren't having to deal with anymore because they've progressed as a species and instead are going off into the universe and finding bringing the light of civilization and rationality and egalitarianism to less developed places and the further star trek goes on the more they kind of tend to get away from that idea and start talking about the fact that, okay, maybe it's really great in certain places in the Federation, but there's other stuff that isn't necessarily being talked about that, you know, imply that all of this perfection would seem to come at a cost, and they don't necessarily talk enough about what that cost actually is. Just because they may have moved beyond a post-scarcity society, it doesn't mean that everybody is suddenly all now emotionally and psychologically beyond some of the same issues that we have today in terms of selfishness or in terms of paranoia or in terms of violence and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's entirely possible that Alex's vision for this might have changed a bit over the course of writing all of phase one and then getting hung up on certain parts of 2020 as he was trying to write this like i think when we to be fair that's a pretty like sizable yeah, thing that's difficult to not get hung up on exactly so i suspect that when we finally interview alex and sharon about this when they finish the audio drama version of stone string maidens that some of the questions we might ask him in terms of how this book came about would be enlightening in that regard but to be honest the one comparison that came up to me as i was going through the world and story of stone spring maidens was thinking about ursula le guin's the dispossessed widely regarded as being one of her best books over the course of her oeuvre. Not to get too far off on a tangent here, but I came to Ursula Le Guin late in my life. Only in the last five years during a book club did I actually have a chance to read The Dispossessed and Left Hand of Darkness, 
two books widely regarded as some of her best works ever. If you have never read them, I highly recommend them, because to me, they challenge the idea of what sci-fi truly is. I grew up thinking about the sci-fi genre as being wholly about space and technology, how even as we rocketed into the future, that certain things remain the same, or that exposure to aliens or new technologies opened up new ideas for us to try and process. And the Gwyn uses those elements, but she also focuses much more on playing around with the fundamental aspects of what makes up humanity. In Left Hand of Darkness, she played around with ideas of culture as relate to gender. And in The Dispossessed, it's with the exploration of morality and political philosophy. But most importantly to me years ago was reading just Le Guin's introduction in the first pages of Left Hand of Darkness. If you have never read it, I highly recommend it as those words alone rocked me back on my heels. To take a perfect snapshot of its content, she writes, The artist deals with what cannot be said in words. The artist whose medium is fiction does this in words. The novelist says in words what cannot be said in words. Am I saying that Alex is as good a writer as Ursula Le Guin? Well, first of all, it's not a fucking competition. But Toby and I wouldn't be talking for almost three hours about this book and over 50 hours thus far about New Century as a series if it didn't have something serious going on under the hood. But it specifically focuses on a main character that supposedly comes from a, a utopic society or at the very least a highly socialist society where in theory everyone is provided for and well, showing that there are still problems in that world even if they try to pretend that those problems don't exist and when he goes from his utopia into another world and sees both how much worse it is than his world but that there are still positive aspects of that world that he can reflect on and bring back to his own. It's meant to be a reflection of the dichotomy, as mm. you say, about the things that the Elaine are doing right and the things that the Elaine are doing wrong in comparison to how things are on our Earth, even an Earth that is hundreds of years less built up than, you know, our current world, current year argument 2020 and everything like that. As Harry is learning more about the things that the Elaine value, the way that their societies are completely different, and yet seeing just as often that just because there are things that this powerful society, at least, it seems to have figured out that there is still, what's the word, nationalist propaganda going on in terms of, oh, look at us, look at how great we are that we are able to accomplish all these things. There is still a cost 
that all of this comes at and they try to avoid having to reflect on that cost because they want to believe that they are good people and all that sort of thing. This is a podcast, so there's no visual medium, but just picture one of your favorite moments from movies or TV where a character breaks the fourth wall to stare meaningfully at the camera. Like, I I think that of all of the books that we end up talking about over the course of our podcast, it's entirely possible that in the however long it takes us, like season 10 or whatever, as you were saying, however long it takes us to start digging into the meat of Stone Spring Maidens, I suspect that we are going to be digging most into the actual world-like differences between our world and Autumn, and that's going to take up a great deal of talking time in terms of reflecting on how Autumn is a commentary on our world. Mm. Having said that, I think what makes this text so much more appealing than some of the utopian texts that I read is that this very much puts the focus on characters because a lot of these and these are utop these utopian texts were things from centuries ago where they're mm-hmm. more they read more like just a barely narrativized museum walkthroughs of someone's particular philosophical projections and they think like yes it would be absolutely very good if we did that oh yes it would be good for that Mm, yes rinse and repeat for 300 pages with this it explores that through the perspective of established characters and the characters who aren't just talking at one another but developing relationships with one another which is why this their sort of conversations about the world feels like a conversation there's an interaction between worlds and not just a here's my D setting notes that i'm <laughs> putting in a book form to throw at you and oh my god if you did a DD setting of some of those books jesus uh, but this one i would definitely be up for it's maybe i'd get to make out with Vatar or gany i don't know um <laughs> well okay that now that you've put that image in our head so uh, you're welcome slash i'm sorry <laughs> Don't apologize to me. Like, I don't think we've ever had a a concrete discussion about your sexuality, but I'm the one that's confessed to be (laughs) bi over here. And I don't necessarily know that I'm not so much into beards per se. And to be perfectly honest, Atar might be a little bit too abrasive for me, but I could totally see making out with Ganymede. I... You know, I'd even I'd even potentially be into the robotic arm and everything like that. So don't worry. Don't 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 worry about making like I'm going to be disturbed or anything like that. I would never even suggest in all seriousness that anyone that either you or anyone listening would be put off by the very <laughs> notion of two men making out if you're put off by that uh, buddy you're reading the wrong book um, yeah i was about to say <laughs> no uh, i apologize more for the mental image of me kissing anyone i apologize 
Oh, for goodness sake. No, don't, no. don't be put, don't <laughs> I, put it like that, Toby. Uh, don't you worry. Don't you worry. I'm fully aware of what a catch I am. Winks to camera. <laughs> you know, when you were mentioning earlier that you had been gushing at Sarah a lot in regards to New Century, I do have, you know, briefly one curiosity now, especially that you have a, uh, a powerful new microphone. Would Sarah be interested at all in coming on the podcast and discussing New Century? I mean, has she actually read any of it, or is she merely just a a tolerant audience as you go off on one talking about <laughs> a, the series a you tolerant, love? A tolerant audience. I think that it, when and if uh, Sarah go, jumps into New Century, it will probably be for the Tiger's Eye uh, <laughs> ones because... It involves animals, but um. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, so, so yeah. b- big, big into the cats then. Yeah, she's a zoologist and avid pet lover. Big into just animals. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I know we mentioned briefly uh, in conversation beforehand, and this is the basest form of notes. But we were talking about Mr. White and just like, mm. do people know what what our feelings are on this? And to sort of like add to. Like before I get into that, I will briefly say that one thing I really like about how White is characterized, especially in the first half of this book, is that in Uncivil Outlaw, he's very much a physical presence, a physical agent. He's the Terminator. Well, I don't disagree with his characterization. We use that comparison a lot. And to be honest, from the moment we're introduced to White in Arlington, he carries himself less like any motionless killing machine and more like Darth Vader. But we'll talk a lot more about that another time. And in this book, he actually, for the first time, kind of lives up to his namesake and becomes a phantom, that is, a ghost that is haunting Harry. Mm. And what kind of sells me on it is that you have these two books, uh, one after the other, where Mr. White is very much the emphasis of it and i think it's because they are he's framed in very different ways that makes it really work as a pairing because you could after um like it would reveal i suppose a couple of spoilers of uncivil outlaw but you could very much go from steamheart to stone spring maidens and have this be the place where Arlington being uh, Mr. White is revealed be like the first time you find that out because Mm -hmm. I think it carries just as much weight as I was saying to you in the conversation and this is how I loop back into the point I was meant to get into well done me Mr. White feels like the worst kept secret in Washington Mm. in that he despite how sort of clandestine he was and i like the visual storytelling during the flashback where you see exactly how they sold the fiction the illusion that thomas had died in the assassination attempt and how he took that medicine that simulated death for a short period of time before he was able to come back but um i think that anyone who knew thomas well enough beforehand who spends enough time around white or has enough pieces of the puzzle will more often than not 
either suspect or kind of put two and two together and just be like, okay, that's that's totally Thomas under there, isn't it? In the same way that for me, while I was reading this, I never, it wasn't necessarily about having my suspicions confirmed because I was like 98% sure it was him uh, before Uncivil Outlaw. I mean, who knows? It could have. It could have been Carl. Um, but <laughs> the... It was me this whole time, you fuckos. <laughs> I will never get tired of referencing that. It was never a case of is it Thomas? What it like? It's about when the information will come out. It's about when will this elephant in the room be confronted? Because there's this feeling, I think that anyone around White will know is that he has chosen this persona to show to the world. This is the means by which he interacts with people. So if you try to forcibly remove the mask by saying, okay, look, buddy, I know it's you, Thomas, like, there's no real telling what will happen, what will lash out at you if you try to see what's under the mask what's under the armor and that's why Catherine it, early on in the book when you had that scene between her and white in the office there's a moment where the narration specifically says that she chose her next words very carefully which is that uh the mistake uh, that some of the fallout of his decision at green hollow is being looked after and at that white pauses and then says thank you and I have a feeling that when Alex does the audio drama of this, that line will be one of those lines where the various effects and performance tricks that he slash Thomas does to try and mask the true identity underneath White's mask will dip for just a moment. And you'll hear some of Thomas's true, quote unquote, voice uh, filter through when he says thank you. I think that's a moment where Catherine is sort of doing something that gives what she knows Thomas needs to hear or suspects that, you know, Thomas should hear without like reaching that uncertain territory of how he'll react if she tells him that she knows who it is. Because I think Catherine knows. I think Catherine figures it out quite quickly. She may have less of a personal relationship with Thomas. In point of fact, now that I think about it, she may have no relationship with Thomas considering that she was brought in after Thomas quote-unquote died. But she's just she, she would have known person. Sarah Arlington, right? Didn't because uh, Abigail and Sarah had the conversation in Steamheart about her. At the very least, that maybe she wouldn't have known her. But anyway, I've stepped on your point. Please continue. I think it was Truth that brought Catherine in at the very end of Arlington. I'd have to go back and confirm that. Mm-hmm. But the two of them would have met early on as a result of Catherine taking over the post that Thomas, quote-unquote, vacated with his death. My point is, is that Catherine, in general, is a very perceptive person. And mm. even without personal experience dealing with Thomas Arlington prior, if you start putting together pieces in terms of the kinds of things that Thomas was putting into motion and the close relationship he had with Grant, 
it's understandable to make certain assumptions about who in the world would have the ability to convince Grant to make Silent Company its own part of the NIA that is unanswerable to no one. And the mm. list becomes very small. When yeah. you start putting together certain other elements, which is what I was doing as I was thinking about a lot of these other ideas back after reading Arlington and first being presented with the idea of white and then reading Steamheart and all of a sudden a whole lot of other pieces uh, fit into place, such as the realization that the reason why Sarah was killed is because she wasn't wearing her armor mm-hmm. as opposed to Thomas, who would always be wearing his armor because that's the kind of person he's presented as. Mm-hmm. A lot of that information comes into play and it feels like Again, even without the personal experience of dealing with Thomas as Thomas, she would have access to the kind of information that would allow her to put together some of the facts that would be necessary for her to figure it out. But it is true that when I went over the top of that moment the first time, I didn't realize the implication of her words. It was only after reading it the second time and then responding to some of your points online that I realized, oh, she absolutely knows what's going mm-hmm. on here. And she's very sort of potentially carefully letting Arlington know without coming out explicitly mm-hmm. and saying it that she knows. So to go on a side tangent here, but still related to White, I don't think you're... Uh, overly familiar with it from memory but i absolutely got vibes of phantom of the opera as to the final fate of white in this i i I am not hugely familiar with the phantom of the opera but to be perfectly honest i know enough of the tangential stuff to feel like that might have been a little bit of what alex might have been going for there particularly since after having listened to their podcast on the Phantom and more specifically on the, uh, the movie version of it that is uh, disliked in certain circles, I couldn't help but feel like, yeah, there might be something of that going on there after White is reduced to just the mask. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, that mm. would not shock me at all. But what, what are your further thoughts on the matter? Well, uh, there's not necessarily a lot of further thoughts. I think that the final scenes have a lot of similarity in terms of in the, at least the play in the film, there's Mm. the main characters leave the like catacombs or whatever the lair that the phantom is in. There's the sort of the equivalent of the angry mob descending and going to Ah. hold him to task. And then when they come, there's nothing left of the phantom save his mask stone company coming in and finding nothing of white except the armor and the mask just reminds me of that but mm-hmm. i think also the fact that the last act of both of them is to in phantom there's this weird thing going on where the phantom kind of becomes uh, christine's angel of music who uh, taught her how to sing and everything like that and became a stand-in as a father figure because she, like, 
associates it with her departed father and thinks that the voice that she hears is associated with that. But it's creepy because the Phantom has this thing of, you are my duty, you, everything I gave to you, and also, you like, do you want to be in a relationship with me? Do you like me? Tick yes or no. Uh, <laughs> no, I will destroy everything! Um, whereas in this, it's like, no, it's Thomas is Harry's actual father, and it's super sad because he has kind of cut off all parts of it, and he only allows himself to see himself as Thomas at the very end, uh, which that floored me, the deliberate transition from the narration referring to him as Mr. White to when he learns, when he remembers his past learned knowledge that he collected as Thomas Arlington, and the text in italicized wording says, Thomas Arlington knelt down besides Penny and helped to like breathe. That was, I, I got emotional and teared, teared up and multiple times throughout the book. That one reduced me to sobs. Uh, just, it was so good. But the final actions of the Phantom is to let Christine and her romantic interest go. And in, like, this one, there's a certain comparison in that, like, Thomas is leaving and it means that his daughter figure who is an actual daughter this time and he doesn't have any weird baggage with she is able to go live her life with her romantic interest when a angry mob descends upon him and he leaves only his mask behind i just it's a minor connection mm-hmm. the way toby sells this i can totally see the parallels the ones i drew were more what began with abigail at the end of uncivil outlaw and culminated with Harry here, where Nick Fury gave way to Steve at the end of The Winter Soldier. It's just that in the case of this story, there's also much more the feel of the jaded adult from the generation before stepping aside for the young to try a different, better way. It feels like I'm letting you talk a lot, but to be perfectly honest... I'm happy to do so, especially since you're the one with all the excess energy to work off. But the, <laughs> I the do thing... apologize for stepping on your words this episode. No, no, no. I um, I have things to contribute, but obviously I, I would get more long-winded and more extemporaneous if I had notes to draw on, as mm. opposed to, as I said, am more or less riffing off what you're bringing to the table. But mm. as I am bringing some of my own thoughts to the table in terms of remembering how I felt through mm. listening to how you feel about it, one of the things that I'm curious about hearing more from you since we're on the subject of Thomas and White is how do you feel about White as an antagonist in this book? Mm. It's... Tricky because mm-hmm. you have that, like, this is the thing is like, are we talking about the package that is Thomas and Mr. White, or are we talking about the half of him that is Mr. White? What's funny is that this book feels like it is the sequel, if it is a sequel to anything from phase one of New Century, it is a sequel to Arlington. So mm-hmm. if this was to follow that in naming convention, I would call this Arlington's. 
in mm. the <laughs> that, yeah. very well played there so yeah no. as an antagonist like i say i think that what works is in the first half the only scene we see with him is that scene with in catherine's office mm-hmm. and the rest of it he's referred to at a distance he's like people talk about him but we don't see him and we even have dreams that harry has where he is this specter and it almost becomes somewhat like sephiroth like in the Mm -hmm. sense that for a large part of the beginning it's just someone who's talked about but you don't see and like he wields a deadly katana and in one of the dreams he like descends upon her from above and it's just like okay well shit i guess uh we new century has a sephiroth no he as an antagonist i think that it's this feeling it's hard for me to separate it from because your wording is how do i feel about him as an antagonist in this book and for a large part and portion of it, it feels like the antagonist is actually Cal. Um, as a we're going to get into Cal. Yeah, we're going to get into Cal, but like but... in the romance portion of this book, Cal is kind of like if we never got to the tail end of Act Two and Act Three, then Cal would be the the antagonist of the romance portion of this book. Oh God, but... going back in the direction of Gothic. We're, we're, we're going back into gothic, aren't we? I just... <laughs> nah, 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 nah. This is uh, fantasy romance. It's completely different. Uh, wait, <laughs> but no, there that's are technically definitely some gothic thieves. elements. Uh, no, this is uh, conceptual... This is utopian fiction. For, uh, for, I don't, it's LGBTQ romance. It's lovely. Um, but no, the... Uh, Arlington as a antagonist, I'm flailing around here because it's genuinely difficult to answer this he's hmm. white is kind of like this concept he's the criticism of like batman as like okay but oh we let's actually interrogate this and be like yes he's doing all this stuff and his conversations that like atar like is asking okay Explain to me your civilization, okay? Now that you've done that, why is what White is doing a bad thing? And uh, see, there it, we go. Yeah, and then you have just as things become more desperate. I think the real gut punch is that the big change, the big shift in like the reunified states of America that will go on to affect other stories happens before the end of Act Two when we find out the election results and this is absolutely a book that has been written within the last five years because uh, (laughs) it's at that point where it's fascinating that i keep using that word but it is so i'll say it white is a reactionary antagonist he is i think i have a i think i have a uh, character i can compare him against actually that's helpful for this if you've played the Miles Morales, the Sony Spider-Man mm-hmm. game's successor, the Tinkerer in that occupies quite a similar role as an antagonist in that they are this masked vigilante who's highly motivated and highly driven to go after someone who is representative of 
absolute corruption and someone who feels like they can they will always get away with it mm-hmm. i shan't say it too much but the fact that it's someone who feels like they come when you find out the identity there's someone who feels like they come from a very vulnerable and sympathetic and empathetic background and they're going up against this you can't help but feel somewhat like you wish you could be more aligned with them that they Mm -hmm. could be more aligned with you but because they are in a desperate situation their actions get more desperate and it's at risk of just damaging things beyond all repair it's right that this comes to a conclusion not at like abigail or james's hands in uncivil outlaw but with harry here because she is the result of White's collateral damage. So it is right that she is the one who builds herself back up and puts a stop to this wrecking ball. Because a lot of what White is saying is that he's being surgical, that he will spend as much time as he can just surgically removing the worst parts of America, the worst parts of society, because they are a cancer on this nation. But for at least one point, he was not a scalpel. He was a nuke descending on somewhere, and someone got caught in the fallout. And I think that as the cancer grows more, he becomes this the scalpel adapts and he goes from someone who uses a samurai sword to take out gangsters and racists to someone carting around a bag of explosives that uh, he... he, I keep flailing around with this, but the truth is that's kind of what White is doing. His conviction is no longer... He's shaken... And it means that for so much of this, he is an uncertain antagonist because he is uncertain and you are uncertain how you feel about him, how he should be stopped, if he should be stopped. And it creates this tension. I... The last five years in particular have been very wearing on the Mm. soul of a lot of people in terms of feeling like there are people in power or that rose to power that are encouraging the worst aspects of our society and as a result making everything more horribly worse. And we can't really talk about this without talking about some of the surrounding politics of the real world and how those are reflected in New Century and in Stone Spring and how things play out in Stone Spring Maidens. If Hillary had won back in 2016, then there are some things that might not necessarily have gotten better. But one can't help but feel that things would have not gotten sufficiently 
bad to the point of this is where we are right now in 2021 that having the wrong person in power and having him appointing the kind of people that would only be force multipliers in making everything worse things that it would take a long time to come back from as a result finding ourselves in a position where we know for certain that based on what we learn in this book McPherson's rise to power is going to be a similar blight on that world this makes us this makes me look at Mr. White's goal of acting to prevent McPherson from a position where he might do the same in Century. I look at that and think, why do we actually want to stand in the way of that, as you were saying a moment ago? Why shouldn't we let him... Wouldn't it be better if we could just make this major problem go away? Mm. And that makes... I'm not happy about thinking about this kind of thing because the idea of using violence to remove someone that you think is a bad influence on our society these are the thoughts that people on the other side are acting on right now this is part of what the whole goddamn storming the capital thing was about a few weeks ago we don't want to put ourselves in bed with that kind of thinking, no matter how helpless we actually feel about what is going on. It's just that so often it doesn't feel like the systems we have in place can be used effectively against these people, and that frustration is only growing in the weight of inaction that is happening regards to certain individuals since the storming of the Capitol. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you can give in to despair and feel like the only way out is to be as bad as those people that were shouting about trying to kill progressively aligned or even non-progressively aligned elected officials in mm -hmm. order to carry out their idea of the way things should be. Mm -hmm. And I do know that the book itself puts forward that there are greater considerations that if White actually succeeded with this, then it wouldn't actually solve anything because it would eventually get out potentially who white is and mm -hmm. therefore any gains that might have been had by removing McPherson would actually not work out. So yeah, it's white makes for in, in, in ways that he wasn't in uncivil outlaw because he was threatening our friends. White comes across as being a far more complicated one might even dare say sympathetic antagonist in that he invokes the kind of frustration and pain mm. and anger that we have 
overseeing how things have gotten so very fucked up uh, I, recently. And yeah, I would agree with that. And I think it's I've, I keep using the word desperation. And that's the thing is that he is quite different to the laser targeted version of him that we see in Uncivil Outlaw, because in that his conviction is there and that takes place after the scene we see in this book where we saw actually what was going on in his head as he was ordering the attack on Green Hollow. Yeah. And yet I think that it's important that we see that moment in this book where he's had the encounter with Abigail Agent Lee is no longer really being there and supporting him. We saw that she was there when he almost threw everything away, including his life after the attack on Green Hollow. And the fact that she is no longer really there to support him probably has done just as much damage, if not more than whatever physical injury Abigail inflicted on him at the Citadel. The things that always fuck me up the most in New Century is when Thomas has a space where he vents because at the end of Arlington that that messed me up when he's on top of the roof of the Capitol building talking mm-hmm. with Seth in Uncivil Outlaw when he's just so tired There's, the speech he has in Uncivil Outlaw is one of the best encapsulations of someone who is so tired from how fucked it's all gotten. Mm. And in this, I think we see a version of Thomas that is broken, that is mm. breaking from this. And the th- the rawest feeling I've ever had with him, and in a lot of fiction in general, is when he keeps himself composed after the attack on Green Hollow and then when he goes into his room he yanks off his armour and the dialogue of it, it's just, it's everything everything, everything It's and it just tears into you because it conveys the sheer universal weight of a world that makes no sense and is so cruel for him to come back enough that he's able to call himself not Mr. White but Thomas Arlington and just help a woman who's going through a spell and is having breathing problems and he's just able to tell her to breathe and to breathe with him specifically, which is an action we can't help but compare with James in secret rooms. Oh God, you're right. As a healing action and hug his daughter after so much distance. It's, a part of it that feels like as much as you can break and disintegrate and die over and over again in a thousand ways through 
what the world has done to you, what it's taken from you and what you have done in an attempt to fight it and the damage you have sown, all of it kills Thomas over and over. And yet he still survives enough to do some good. And my hope is that this is not the end of that is worth holding on to. I only just sent you the um, newest edited episode for perusal, uh, which I guess will probably happen sometime tomorrow for you. But mm. after I'm listening... sorry, I was too busy reading New Century to listen <laughs> no, about New no. Century. <laughs> <laughs> you needed to prepare for this podcast. I'm not... My my commentary is that I will be very interested on hearing your immediate response after listening to the music that I chose for the outro for that particular episode, which I will not spoil, Mm. but let's just say it's likely to be thematically resonant to some of the stuff that you just talked about right there. Absolutely. Um, (laughs) Let's spring this away from Thomas and White because I think he's been very well covered and I think we need to bring ourselves up. So So we're going to talk about something that's good and positive and someone we like, like Calendula. No, no, wait a second. No, not yet. No, no, I need need some time. I want to talk about Harry and Penny. (laughs) Oh my God, they're so fucking adorable. Well, do you have anything to say besides they're so fucking adorable? Because I'm not arguing no. with any of that. Uh, if we're, if we're going to start so, discussing the actual romances that mm-hmm. take place in there, yes. then seeing the way Harry and Penny bounce off each other, and to mm-hmm. a separate extent, seeing the way a lot of the core cast bounces off each other in mm-hmm. terms of Harry being a almost an ambassador, not of her country, but as a bridge between Penny and Ganymede and Atar, bringing them all together mm. into sort of this separate unit of people with with a few other satellites springing off of that as well. And- and That's then very watching, true. yeah, exactly. Because it's like before Harry comes into the picture, Penny and Ganymede are like there's a rough patch in their friendship because of the offer that Cal threw at their feet that calls mm-hmm. that leads to a rift, and it's she sort of like she doesn't necessarily do anything active to make this happen but she facilitates that reconnection and she also kind of is a bridge between penny and atar who atar is kind of being a bit of an asshole to penny at the start of the book and understandably so he's atar is protective of ganymede and very likely Mm. frustrated with as he says the emotional difficulty that he is placing at Penny's feet. Honestly, I feel like it should be placed more at Calendula's feet. But then again, yeah. Calendula isn't actually an important person in Ganymede's life. Penny is, and so therefore Atar is frustrated 
on behalf of Ganymede in terms of Penny being unable to mm. deal with this problem that has put between yeah. all of them. Calendula um, isn't really invested in, like, intending to Ganymede's, like, emotional, like, well-being. But, but no. Penny... Is, and and again, we'll get be. into that. Yeah. And I think that's what Atar like resents is that like this is someone who cares about you, and like I would take it you care about him, and yet your shit is kind of uh, like having this negative impact on him. And it's not necessarily as like venomous as that, but it is very much quote a sort of get your shit together, Penny, which feels mm. harsh and unfair when our perspective has been aligned with Penny's so far and the thing is that as time went on I grew a lot more fond of Attar but um I will I will sort of come back to that I will f finish off my thoughts on Penny and Harry as a couple and as a romance uh, in that I summarized it as what if that you know, the two tech bros or two science geeks getting along with each other because finally they have someone to talk to, a la, you know, Tony Stark and... Uh, Bruce. And Bruce in The Avengers and them uh, forming a science bros friendship in that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, but what if we made that a romance? And mm -hmm. it's like, okay, they're, like, they're geeking out and then they kiss. Um, <laughs> but... I think that what's why that works for this story is that there are people who are presenting things to both Harry and Penny that they are thinking this will make you happy or this is for the best for you. And in Penny's case, it's, I think, a lot less sort of I have a lot less compassion towards the people doing that because Lamia seems awful and like cal is cal we'll get to her um mm -hmm. and but in harry's case it's truth and people that we have seen in reunified states who are doing their best but this is a very hard situation so even a kind gesture can will not really be helpful but it's in both cases it's a feeling of like other people making incorrect assumptions of what it is they actually need and it's only when harry meets penny which is i still love that <laughs> chapter title um yeah, yeah. Uh, that they they have aligned interests which means that they're able to they take an interest in one another and it means that they actually listen to what is going on with the other person and are able to see what it is they need. There's a moment early in Act 2 that I mm -hmm. just felt was particularly well laid out. I, I'm probably going to get the wording of it wrong, but it was the extent of when they were first getting to know Penny as regards uh, getting new legs for Harry. Truth was seeing what Penny's profession was, what she did for a living, what she cared about. Mm. Harry was seeing Penny. That is a moment <laughs> that I will say this right now, and I really... Alex, like, come here. Come here, Alex. <laughs> I know that you worry about your, like, 
am I as good a writer as I am like an audio or anything like that? I am telling you right now, on text, that moment was fucking, you know, sorry, it was frocking gold because <laughs> you just see the line of what Truth is seeing and the line of what Harry is seeing and visually just seeing the words, the text on the page, it's perfect because you see the longer sentence of what Truth is seeing and you see the shorter sentence of what Harry is seeing and it feels like because of that, because of the one word difference, your Harry is seeing a layer beneath that. She is seeing the heart of Penny, whereas Truth is not seeing that. And I think that that will that moment will still have effect in the audio drama. But Alex, that was a great moment of writing. <laughs> you write good books; they work well as literature. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, we ended up having that whole conflict uh, back during the interview about uh, reading Uncivil Outlaw being as akin to reading the script of a movie and everything like that. And I, I can see both sides of it as being, you know, that the whole point of doing the audio drama is to add extra contextual layers and add nuances and performances that strengthen the overall whole but mm. you know it can also not be said enough by either of us i agree that mm. none of that would i'm not saying that none of that would matter but it has the audio drama has to have a strong foundation to work off of absolutely um, and that foundation is only getting stronger because there were so many moments while I was reading this where I was struck by just how the words were laid out just sounded beautiful. Like I mentioned earlier how the whole book can be summarized by the sentence near the end that they made love on what used to be her sickbed is a fantastic, just concise Take it from someone who has just got uh, edited their own work that was 76 pages long. I wish I had that ability of conciseness. I mm -hmm. wish I had that. And there's uh, so many other moments where these thoughts and expressions are communicated in ways that like, I've never heard before. And it's just... It's fun. It, it's such an experience to roll the words around in your head to just like let the concept stay for a moment and you c consider and reflect it's such a reflective book which i think is a, why this feels like such a welcome companion piece or a follow-up to uncivil outlaw whereas that one is such a you know constant forward momentum mm -hmm. this one is much more reflective and takes its time I, I it still, has to be since it's yeah, producing a new world to us. Exactly. And you know, I, I really like Uncivil Outlaw, but this just this was exactly the book I was in the mood for right now. I have no idea how the stars aligned, but I and obviously I know that Alex would have wanted to get this out like sooner after and all that, but genuinely this came out at the perfect time for me and mm -hmm. it's it's going to be a long time before another book resonates with me in quite a sort of perfect way 
Wait a minute, when's the next one coming out? Oh, it's in a matter of days? Oh, fine. (laughs) (laughs) I I will be, like, we're going to end up having to do our own quick review on Panther Slow when that comes out as well. But See you next time this week? Yeah. (laughs) No, this time next week, rather. I mean, honestly, as before, I'm probably going to devour it within a day, and you might need to take extra time to get into it, depending Um, on... What I'm else do you have to, on your docket? I'm going to make sure that uh, I sink my teeth into it a at the very least sort of earlier and mm-hmm. can make it more consistent. And then there's not quite as much of a difference in like your experience of it and my experience of it. But yeah, anyway, we're getting off topic. Uh, Stone Spring Maidens. That's, we need to talk about Stone Spring Maidens while it's the new hotness. Quickly, Alex is like closing <laughs> on us in this race. <laughs> Well, you know, obviously, as he is, he starts putting out the individual episodes as audio dramas. We are going to eventually have uh, an interview with them on this as well. And then eventually we'll get to it as being part of a retrospective, at which point we will dice it up into a million little pieces and talk for 72 hours about one book. Now, I don't know. I don't yeah, know. well, so we'll talk for a long time. Maybe we'll, we'll talk get about all of the then. books. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair mm-hmm. enough. It's definitely true that the more we have to talk about the world that the stories are in, then we start going on bigger, more navel gazy topics as opposed to the way we often focus on the individual character moments like as happened when we were discussing Let Them Go and Secret Rooms. Those Mm. conversations were almost always about the interactions between our players and how we felt about them with some dovetailing into bigger subjects like feminism and racism and everything like that. But most of it is really about the smaller focus, as you would have put it a second ago, not about the huge world-building epic that say jer or tolkien is most known for in terms of his long mm-hmm. descriptive passages about isengard or the shire or anything like mm. like that and you can see that from just how little how like how much there is that we still don't know about awesome like near the end of the book it's like oh uh, these are the imperial guard of the empress and i was thinking wait were we in an empire? I, I totally oh, yeah. like and like and things like that, which catches you off guard, and you go like, "Oh, there are conflicts with other places," and you're like, "Like, how many other places? Like, wait, is there an ocean? And like, there's so much we don't know, and that's okay because we don't need to know about it yet. When I mean, we do, I'm sure it will come up. I I would argue about that a little bit because one of the things that I'm completely fixated on is the fact that their calendar system is apparently based around gods that theoretically only exist on Earth. Yeah, so, so what's the deal with like a place called Aphrodite? And it's like, wait, 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 what's going on there? <laughs> so already we're asking ourselves, I mean, I'm wait. just getting ready for our Hades interview. Well, not HMV, uh session, anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we're automatically thinking to ourselves, wait a second, is there some sort of shared history going on where Autumn was in fact connected to Earth way back when? 
did the Elaine come over and pretend to be gods in some version of Earth? What's the connection here? And we're probably not going to find yeah. out the truth about that for a long while, since yeah. uh, we're not going to be did, coming back to autumn crystal, anytime soon. Uh, did the crystal gems like establish themselves <laughs> here, like around the time of ancient Greece, and it's just that's the part of like culture that's stuck? I I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Something that stuck out to me earlier. I'd be like, oh, that's an interesting bell to be ringing there. But what the fuck does it mean? <laughs> yeah, that's just, there was a moment in like the final pages of the book where it's talking about all the members of the NIA that are attending this and it's name checking just a whole bunch of people we've been introduced to. It was here that our conversation was disturbed by a domestic squabble in the flat above Toby's and we paused several minutes to determine if action should be taken. By the time it seemed to have resolved itself due to someone having left, we completely forgot what we were talking about. So I jumped back in with my thoughts on the connections between New Century Worlds. One of the ongoing thoughts that I have is, was there a time where the multiverse was actually more strongly connected to each other? Was there wind doors before all of this, way back mm -hmm. in what would have been the prehistory of the universe? Especially since we already know in theory that that did happen with Rama. There are these ancient drawings of wind doors and interactions between cats and things that might be humans. So... Are we seeing further evidence that mm. there is a history that is not known about by most that all of these similar terms come from? And that's indicative of a time when wind doors were in more prevalent use. Yeah, especially because something that I noted is a point of connection between this and Tiger's Eye is that both stories feature characters pointing at ruins of ancient civilizations or cities mm -hmm. and it's odd that both of them have a pre-existing like civilization that was established enough to have like these old decaying ruins of n old new york like in futurama but like the just these ancient cities that were developed enough that it feels like they were not necessarily just whatever out the equivalent of like the ancient civilizations in our world are they could possibly have been people who got to a similar level as where like james and abigail's world got to it's just odd that both of these places have that and they have this indication of it could be that the 10 worlds are all actually come from the same like base starting point but there are little cosmological differences that radically shifted the path of evolution or the like development of this planet it's fascinating to just see i keep using that word um but the idea of this is a world that turned down this path when it could have turned down this but no matter what there's always these little faint handprints of 
a civilization not unlike our own. And that's not the only similarity that we could draw on between this and Tiger's Eye, because in the case of Stone Spring Maidens, Harry comes from a different world and facilitates communication between people of that world. Mm. It's just in that in, in the case of Tiger's Eye, it's conversation between different tribes, as well as in some cases communication between Hrau and Dr. Shira or getting Haka and Hrau to finally talk to each other again with Miguel as being the foundation for these conversations actually happening. And in Stone Spring Maiden's case, it's about dealing with this ongoing problem that wasn't going to get resolved without some outside influence. And it just so happens to be Harry is the focal point in that particular line of communication and everything like that. Mm. So, yeah, that's uh, there. There is definitely symbolic similarities going on there, even as mm. they are very clearly their own stories. And I think it's fascinating. Why am I using that word? Um, <laughs> and I think it, that it's, it's, it's the word that's taken place of interesting for us now. No, it, it is. Yeah. No. Well, uh, we'll get chastised by a teacher for using the F word next. Um, <laughs> but I think revealing that the in these that are very specifically about interaction between two different worlds we're seeing these evolving relationships that are symbolic of what the potential could be with unity between these disparate worlds. And in Tiger's Eye, it's a mother adopting a child as her own. And in this, it's two women falling in love. And in, in Princess Thieves, you've got a man and woman falling in love and they're different species that all there's there's all sorts of a whole spectrum of relationships that are evolving and emerging as these stories carry on which i mm -hmm. think is indicative of the new possibilities that are happening and i i, I think that's why arlington feels as much of a significant antagonist as well is because he's all about closing these portals and that's what new century is quite literally built upon mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so let's talk about calendula my first impression the first thing i heard about calendula was i think alex mentioned her on the discord before i had a chance to actually go into stone spring and he said that something along the lines of I hope that people don't dismiss her entirely or like more that like that they just hate her and think there's no possible way I can like get behind this person so when I was like stumbled across her I was thinking okay let me like be open to this and maybe read between the lines maybe there's something like as much as it seems like she's like not all that good for Penny and is not doing, she's not attentive to her or doing like, she's not really acting like anything like what I would consider a good partner to be a good support to be, but let me be patient and maybe I will see like more to it. And as the book went on, I thought, 
hmm, I'm, I'm finding it really difficult not to go onto the Discord and just go, fuck Calangela, she's awful or something like that. In the sense that, like, it, I kept on getting frustrated on Penny's behalf. And I think what was definitely, and I mentioned this, a, an accomplishment was that as as intensely as I felt at times in this book, the fact that I hadn't settled on one feeling or another was, I think, an accomplishment. And it came to her having these conversations with where she like expressed things. And it felt like she did have an honest right to express these things, that there were things that she wanted and slash needed that she wasn't getting from this relationship with Penny. But what I think is so valuable about the final scene between them is that Penny is finally able to articulate her responses, which is that I am able to empathize with you, but I don't think you were ever able to empathize with me. Mm. And that's the key difference is that we like Calendula can be so difficult and does a lot of very hurtful things. Sometimes she doesn't quite realize it. Sometimes she is aware that it has this effect, but she she relies on the fact that she can manipulate things back to way that she will be satisfied with or can control. And it fits so it feels like she knows that she can push her boundaries on that. And by the end of it, I just felt that I pitied Calendula, but I felt no strong desire for Penny to ever have to do more for her behalf because she lacked that outward perspective, that empathy, and even that sort of internal reflection that... I think made Hucker so much of a different antagonist, a different force that felt like at times, why should we care about this person? And by the end of it, we very much do because by the end of it, he does achieve that feeling of like, he is finally able to empathize and see like how others would see him and Calendula never quite manages that. It's frustrating because she, in some ways, she's able to see things quite clearly. And you feel like she could, if she just put in the effort, manage that. But she doesn't reach it. So I don't hate her by the end of this. But at this point where I don't feel a strong compulsion for her to find the progress that, say, I'm hoping that Beatrix is able to make. Is it Beatrix? Uh, did I just completely... And uh, I'm so sorry. Uh, Tiger's Eye. Beatrix? Well, see, here's the thing. As I was listening to all of you, you talk for a second there. Yeah. I wouldn't... You were initially comparing your experience with Calendula to your experience with Haka yeah. in Tiger's Eye. But in that particular case, especially since that's the, those are the episodes that we're that I'm editing right now in terms of our breaking down our experience with Haka, mm -hmm. his situation is I think far removed from Calendula's situation mm -hmm. because the book establishes Haka 
as being a protagonist on this journey with Brow and Miguel. Calendula mm-hmm. is very significantly an antagonist. She she is a, a secondary character, but the story is not about her in the no. same way that Tiger's Eye is about Haka. I would definitely say her story is perhaps closer to the uh, the captains, as you say, Captain Beatrix Queensbury, in terms of the two of them are antagonists, and they may have opportunities for becoming better people than they are, but we won't necessarily know about that because the story, as Alex c- continues to go on, he may or may not choose to tell more about these people who are complications in our protagonists' lives, but the story is not about them. Mm. Um, just going back and potentially correcting something that you said earlier, I mm. don't remember a point where Alex was worried about our reactions to Calendula. When he was worried about our reactions to a character, he was specifically referring to the panther protagonist in Panther Soul. Right. Okay. That, that's that, that's yeah, fair. It, mm. And that's kind of more important to be able to empathize with the protagonist because the story is about them. Okay. Uh, yeah, I specifically sure. went on to mention that I also had major problems with dealing with the characterization of Calendula, but I was willing to talk about it only in generalities as I was reading and that I was trying, even in private with Alex, I was trying to be very diplomatic in terms of how I felt about that while still being able to come across with some of the powerful emotions I had trying to get through and read her words and see her behavior as regards Penny and Ganymede and a whole bunch of other problematic stuff that she's involved with. Mm. Alex jokingly went on to say, I think at one point, oh, fuck Calendula. Um. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good, yes. I, uh, you know what, with that clarification, I'm very happy to have that because... I like I think I'm in this position where I tend to like try to see the best in most people and, and, and I'm maybe having with that, you on that. Like so maybe having that and sort of maybe want to like I was sort of thinking, okay, there's gonna be some sort of complication to this character which will make me go, Okay, maybe it's not like I shouldn't dismiss her. But at this point, no matter what, I'm just like, Oh fuck her, I'm I'm done. Like good goodbye, Calendula and I think that it's shown in sharp relief at the beginning when she's essentially a mini version of her mum. And yeah, this is it. It's what came to mind just now is that if Penny's mother and Calendula are these kind of touchstones of wider social pressures of, mm-hmm. oh, you need to do this, settle down, uh, meet a meet a man and also a woman and. Uh, have a kid, like, what are you talking about? Don't be upset, this is a good opportunity. Why are you being so difficult? Stuff like that. Then I think that it's really significant that by the end of it, the problem is that 
Penny was able to see things from Calendula's perspective, but she never could see things from her perspective because it feels like there's this pressure to be like, oh, you need to fit in so that I can exist, that I and the society I participate in can all work like happy little cogs. And it's just a case of, it's like, it feels like if there's any request for deviation, her and this system has no room for deviation. And it's the fact, and when she says, okay, you know what, you can maybe bring back some men if that's what you really need. And then she says, okay, but you can't do this. You can't do this with women. And it's just, and it's so thorny and difficult, but I'm so glad that by the end of it, I I said that that scene was pure vindication and it is because it articulates everything. There's a very real thing that I'm glad was observed here is that when you're around certain people, their arguments tend to subsume you. You sort of, mm-hmm. like, whatever your, however clear-cut things seem to be when you weren't around them, suddenly find it's a lot more difficult to hold on to that conviction when they say, oh, no, you're being ridiculous. Just come on, you'll see things my way if you just do this. And by the end of it, to have Penny be able to hear all of Calendula's bullshit, but still say, no, this is how it is. And the difference, uh, I think I love the difference between earlier in the book when Calendula called Harry a bitch and Penny, then at the end, she says, if you call her that again, then that will be the end of this conversation. It's a, it's on her terms, not Calendula's. And it's a very satisfying journey in that sense. I don't know if I really have more to say about her. I, I guess I think it was my misreading of like what Alex was talking about and stuff like that was probably a, a part of me was it was partly just oh, I'm trying to not look too deeply into ongoing new century discussion until I'm up to date. And partly also this like reading of Calendia of maybe giving her a bit too much credit came from, you know, perhaps wanting her to be more sympathetic and complex than she actually was. It was kind of like an inverse of my experience with Aunt Cleo and Let Them Go, where I went from thinking, oh, is she going to be representative of an older generation that has all these expectations and pressures that she's leveling at Rebecca when in actuality the longer I went in I was like no Uncle is the best no Uncle no don't go like here it was like okay well maybe Calendula is rough here and maybe as I go further in I'm going to actually see why they got married in the first place and then by the end of it it's like ah oh, fuck off yeah <laughs> that's it that's it well When I was having a private conversation with Alex on the subject, not to get into too much of it because I said it as I said it was private, but he did express some concern about my personal reactions to Calendula. He was he knew from some of my comments on other pieces of media, in particular Tangled, that 
certain kinds of depictions of people seriously ruffle my feathers, not quite in a fight or flight kind of way, but in, in just that I sort of actively have difficulty moving past the trappings of seeing someone being gaslighted mm. or otherwise, you Nothing know, emotionally best. manipulated mm. and everything like that. Yeah, you, exactly. And yeah. Your emotional empathy is almost like it's too sharp and it becomes distracting. And I would probably say that I have more of a difficulty with that in a female character than I do in a male character because mm. I'm naturally biased against emotionally manipulative men. Like, if mm. I'm faced with that, then I just, like, no, fuck you. Get the fuck out. Get the fuck away from me. But yeah. when I'm hearing those words coming out of a woman, it's like my brain isn't completely equipped to process that. I once heard a close female friend explain to me that thanks to experience both lived and cultural, she always tended to be less relaxed around men in general. And that even with me, someone she knew and trusted, she couldn't completely turn that off. To be honest, I also tend to feel that way around other men. Not as sharply, maybe. But I am more used to being disappointed by the beliefs and the behavior of other men. I trust them less. Which means that it's far easier for a woman to sort of get under my guard and either make me mistrust my own senses or emotions. It's only because of the writing of Calendula that I could see exactly what was going on, and at the same time having my brain glitching like it would if something like this was happening to me in real life. Because I've had experiences like that. Men and women that triggered my empathy in ways that were not conducive to my well-being. It still happens, even when experience should have taught me better. The further we got into Stone Spring Maidens, and we were seeing a complete reversal in terms of what the gender norms are here and who has the implicit power socially, then I was prepared for some of these elements to become relevant. I was not necessarily prepared for the way it would come across in Stone Spring Maidens. And mm -hmm. there were moments with Calendula or with Lamia or other stuff where my mm. I felt like my brain was trying to crawl out of my skull. I was having such a nope reaction to it. I mean, um, the text is showing like this is panic attack inducing. This yeah. and it's so it's sort of like an acknowledgement of yeah no this is all kinds of terrible this situation this whole situation right here. So it is beneficial for her health that uh, she is away from Calendula, and I'm very happy. But, but even on top of that, my own internal alarm senses were going off the second she was trying to come across to Ganymede as being seductive, trying mm -hmm. to convince him that this was a good idea for him. 
And maybe I wouldn't have responded as strongly to that if Ganymede wasn't coded black. But some of the language she uses during that first conversation just feels like the worst aspects of fetishizing black men that happens in our own culture that I was just like, no, holy shit. This is what mm. we're dealing with, with Calendula. I, I, I can't, I, I can't even, I can't mm. what. Uh. Yeah. So <laughs> many, many months down the road, we will of course explore more in depth into all aspects of this book. Calendula included. I've had a chance to see a number of different complicated toxic relationships in media recently, some of which could have a happy ending like in Crazy Rich Asians, and some in where you have to disconnect yourself from them like in America's Sweethearts. But in terms of New Century, the closest connection I drew was how I felt about the relationship between Duke Coriolanus and Gwendolyn. That conversation is also for the future, but in short, I believe in the possibility that Cal does love Penny in ways that I am not entirely convinced that Coriolanus loved Gwen. The problem, of course, is that loving someone only on your own terms is not real love. And even outside of her relationship with Penny, Calendula's empathy for others is clearly limited. Remember, Thanos ostensibly loved Gamora, and we all saw how that turned out. To end on a uh, note of just before we wrap, go into concluding wrapping up thoughts, one thing I do want to touch on, even though we talked about Attar earlier, is I really like how his identity as a trans man was handled in this oh yes absolutely agreed yeah it it was a fantastic moment and i said this on the discord that i do recall that i read when alex shared some artwork of him that even though this is somewhat of a sort of semi-spoiler that he's a trans man uh he wanted to share that because he was just excited about mm -hmm. it but what i was very thankful for was i got the best of both worlds because i thought oh i'm looking forward to meeting them and then i get to stone spring i go through all of this i get to know attar as attar and i've completely forgotten that detail and then it comes up at the very end and i go oh yeah, and that is exactly how it should be because I love that we are like, oh, Atta, like, oh man, you were an asshole, but you're also like, I'm really enjoying hanging around with you. And also this thing you got going on with Gany is really cute. And mm -hmm. then you hear that and you're just going like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. And that's great. And it's not just like, it's also quite an important moment because it is something that is shown that he was willing to be vulnerable mm. in order to help Penny because he volunteered that information mm. that clearly he's been having to kind of keep hush about. And it also puts him in a vulnerable position where he has to uh, confront people and say, yes, I used to be this person and I speak without any personal experience from this. So I can't really comment on mm -hmm. what that, is like for a trans person to 
I know that the term dead naming is a thing, but mm -hmm. this is sort of different to that. So I shan't fumble with it, but I think it is a really great moment of showing just like the weight of that and that afterwards when Gani and him talk in the car and he says so like how long till you're going to ask me about it and just the conversation there I it it was great I mm -hmm. I loved it and I thought it was handled very well and I'm looking forward to seeing more of Atar and I I really like the whole cast and as I said I think this is what like the fourth or fifth likable group of characters that we've been mm -hmm. introduced to in New Century and just this little like social dynamic it really does feel like not even just the MCU but like the Marvel comics where you have characters who are like part of not just one but several group ensembles because harry is like hey will i be hanging out with team steam or with like the the crystal gems today i didn't <laughs> just like um the elaine extras i don't yeah <laughs> also also really love the conversation about colors and what that mm. means because like that was really great and even though my favorite color is green when i saw the whole thing of like uh, Ganymede explaining what blue was where it's particularly loquacious but um, it can lead to inaction I was thinking oh, okay yeah I'm yeah. blue I'm blue <laughs> it was great yeah. it was uh, it's a lovely thing and I was so happy when it culminated in and I was thinking this like okay Harry you should you should go for red and blue and then by the end she did I was like yes <laughs> I mean, we're going to get into enough of a conversation about the symbolic red and blue when we start talking about Arlington, um, mm -hmm. since though, since that the color theory significantly began there as well. I will go on to say that, like you, I don't necessarily have the right vocabulary to speak intelligently on Adar's situation and how that's revealed, but I do know that Alex would have had uh, several consulting voices in regards to mm -hmm. how to integrate that into his story. Honestly, the reveal felt more than a little bit similar to a couple of other authors that I have read in regards to that, where they suddenly introduce the fact that either a, a secondary protagonist character or someone that is introduced as being important to the protagonist and having their trans identity as being part of the interactions that goes on with the past or whatever it is. It's kind of similar to some of the stuff that I've seen in some uh, Shannon McGuire books, as well as a couple of other places. Mm -hmm. The thing that I hope for, which honestly we may not, get a chance to do until a good portion of the audio drama comes out for stone spring maidens is to potentially have uh orion himself on since he's going to be voicing atar when alex was specifically looking to cast this role he was looking for a trans man and orion stepped up to the plate yeah he, he, yes he's been very vocal on 
uh, at times on the New Century Forum in terms of being excited for his part in making all of this come to life. So I'm hoping we'll be able to have a careful and sensitive conversation with him Mm. and hopefully finding out about how Orion's lived experience informs on his inhabiting the role of Atar, as well as potentially how Alex might have tweaked the script based on his input. I'm so looking forward to it because I I mentioned last time that Uncivil Outlaw was the first book that uh, in New Century that I experienced as a book first and then, Mm. well, heard the audio drama. And the thing is that with one or two exceptions, most of the characters in that, most of the key players, are characters that we were already familiar with, already had Mm. been introduced to. So when we were reading that, we already kind of had voices in our heads for these characters. But what I'm excited about with the audio drama is kind of hearing a different take to these characters than what I had in my head. And it's going Mm -hmm. to be quite a journey that I'm excited for. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, in uh, Uncivil Outlaw, I had no idea how, you know, say the veterinarian or that one bartender would sound. And I don't know about you, but I don't think Alex got the best uh, voice actors on for that. You know, maybe he could look further afield for that. But um... I can definitely appreciate what you're saying. I, I <laughs> more seriously, yeah, Stone Spring Maidens is going to have two new voice actors. One is the voice that he got for Ganymede and the other being Orion for Atar. So it's definitely going to be a new, exciting experience that I'm looking forward to seeing play out. Do we know uh, who's playing Penny? Yeah. Um, if I am remembering correctly, I think that Theo is playing Penny based Ooh. on something that she said offhandedly on Twitter, I may have that wrong, but I'm sure as soon as um, as soon as this episode comes out, Alex will correct me one way or the other. Uh, I do know, based on the one sound clip that he provided earlier, that apparently Sharon is going to be voicing Calendula, so that's going to be interesting. Yes, Alex, I know I used the I-word but I also know that you know exactly why I used that word. I mean, um, she's voiced so many characters that I adore in this series. You know, we may as well give her like a character that we hate and not in a fun <laughs> way like Mortimer. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Look at us talking, like, talking about like fan casting and speculating. We're a real fan podcast now. <laughs> Wait, we weren't a real fan podcast before. I think. Oh, we, uh, we were very much under. No, we we've been a real fan. We have been the fan podcast. I'll have you very. I'll thank you very much. Yeah, exactly. We don't have any. We're 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 steam in this regard. We don't have any competitors, so we can dominate the market. Um. <laughs> Okay, uh, I wonder like who's going to have the dubious pleasure of being the EA origins of the new oh century God. fan casts. <laughs> the, well, the, like, oh no, like who's going to be the Epic Game Store? I don't like this comparison. Let's go with something. Yeah, like, I don't. Some, I, I think that yeah. that particular metaphor has gotten away from us. 
Uh, listeners, um, if you have an idea for a better fan podcast than ours, then we hold the market. No, we want you to either guest on ours or start up your like do more, do fan art, do like do start your podcast, start a fan series. I don't know. I'm feeling punchy. Um, wrapping up thoughts. Stone Spring Maidens is great. It remains my favorite book in the series until the next book in the series. Uh, it will remain one of my favorites for a long time. I think then in terms of my own take, I very much enjoyed the overall experience of Stone Spring Maidens. It was difficult to get through in places in the same way that uh, Let Them Go was difficult to get through in places. I expect that talking about it more and mulling over it more and going through the experience of listening to the audio drama will help settle my overall emotions about it and bring me to a place where I'm able to speak more, not necessarily logically, but able to dig into the meat of it better and come to terms with it in the way that I did with Let Them Go. There were just so many really fun moments in mm. Stone Spring Maidens that there weren't as much of, I think, in Uncivil Outlaw. Uncivil Outlaw felt a little bit more fraught, but that's part of because of the theme of what Uncivil Outlaw was, which is essentially a chase narrative. Mm. Now that we have Stone Spring Maidens, the overall theme of that above and beyond all of the internal politics and conflicts and fighting is the romance part of it and stone spring maidens delivers that in spades i would probably go on the record to say that like you reading those parts of stone spring maidens the ones that weren't difficult to get through because of all of the baggage and all the pain and the frustration both on a personal and political level, being able to live in that place with Penny and Harry and even Ganny and Attar was healing to the soul. Yeah. And I think we're going to have to leave it there because yeah. we're not just running out of time, but I think we're running out of steam as well. So... Mm. That's going to be it for our quick review of Stone Spring Maidens. Our two-hour and 40-minute <laughs> quick review of, of Stone Spring Maidens. Well, some of that will be edited down a little bit. But uh, in the meantime... Nah, I just released the raw edit. Uh, we uh, need to get this. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm going to have to edit it down at least some. I, I'm obviously going to be putting less overall effort into it in terms of like adding on moments because there's really no need to do so oh is that what you think past greg oh you sweet summer child but there is definitely ways that i can clean this up to make it sound better so in the meantime the next time you hear from us we're going to be getting back into tiger's eye we don't have anything scheduled on the books for an interview with Maureen. I'm going to have to get back in touch with her, but that will very likely be coming towards the end of our look at Tiger's Eye. And in one week, we'll take another trip through the wind door. Take Bye -bye. care. Oh, no, I have a smoke. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, uh, this is why we had the structure of the main episodes. Oh, holy frocking shit, that took a while. This is why I usually try to keep it to around an hour or so a week. With all the work I put in, all the distractions, it just takes way too long. I thought it was going to be quicker because of what this episode was, and I was wrong. But it was worth it. And pretty soon, we're going to be doing this again with Panther Soul. So I say, bring it. That's why this now gets its own name, News of the Century. No bloopers, as I just trimmed that shit out. But to play us out, a song I've been holding on to for a while. I first heard it thanks to seeing a movie with Whoopi Goldberg, Drew Barrymore, and Mary Louise Parker called Boys on the Side. It's a movie about three women that go on a road trip together and become closer as they deal with all the tribulations of life in a pre-sex-in-the-city world. There's gay energy along with everything else, including soundtrack contributions by Melissa Etheridge, The Cranberries, Annie Lennox, and Bonnie Raitt. But this song was by one of my favorite artists that you know well, the Indigo Girls. It's a song I had in mind for a couple of relationships in New Century, but given the nature of the artists and our heroines, this song works better for Harry and Penny than any other couple. Until next time, this is The Power of Two.
Two.